106 miles to Chicago. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes. It's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it. From Chicago, this is The Unenthusiastic Critic, a podcast about destroying your marriage one movie at a time. and welcome to The Unenthusiastic Critic. I'm Michael McDonough. I write about film and television at unaffiliatedcritic.com. With me today, back from her exclusive three-year tour of Europe, Scandinavia, and the subcontinent, is my lovely wife, Nakia, also known as The Unenthusiastic Critic. The subcontinent? (laughs) The subcontinent. Really? Yeah. Okay. On today's episode, we're getting the band back together for Nakia's first viewing of John Landis's The Blues Brothers from 1980. And Nakia, The Blues Brothers was always on our list of films to watch, for reasons we'll discuss in a minute. But we decided to watch it now, of course, because it features a small but memorable performance by the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin, who passed away on August 16th. Mm-hmm. I, I, What can we say about Aretha? I mean, <laughs> one of the greatest voices America has ever produced. Yes. I mean, she was an absolute giant. If there is a such thing as sort of God's gift, that was her voice. I mean, we could go through the the records. She's, you know, 20 number one hits on the R&B charts, tying her only with Stevie Wonder. Yes. I mean, 2017, Billboard crowned her the number one female R&B act of all time. I don't even know who the competition for that was. But this is a movie podcast, so we Mm -hmm. should probably talk about movies. Though she made a few cameos in movies and TV as herself over the years. She acted in only two movies in her entire career. Mm -hmm. The Blues Brothers in 1980 and its ill-conceived, ill-fated follow-up, Blues Brothers 2000 Mm. in 1998. But I also think her music is pretty inseparable from the movies. Mm -hmm. Me, I immediately think of... Natural Woman on the Big Chill soundtrack, Mm -hmm. but IMDb lists 229 titles featuring (laughs) Aretha's music in films ranging from Coming Home to St. Elmo's Fire to Goodfellas, Forrest Gump, Dead Presidents, Crooklyn, Malcolm X, all the way up to Moonlight in 2016 and Girls Trip in 2017. Mm. And I imagine that will just, that list will just keep on building because that music is just immortal. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Aretha was a genius in the sort of true sense of the word. Like, she wasn't only a singer, she was also a songwriter. And she wasn't only just a singer-songwriter, she was also an amazing pianist. And she wasn't only an amazing pianist, she was also, you know, a brilliant arranger um, and composer. And, you know, it it isn't surprising to hear that her music has sort of enriched films, you know, throughout the decades. Even when her albums or her music weren't, you know, top of the charts, Aretha and Aretha's voice and Aretha's songs are very much sort of the DNA of a part of the DNA of American music Mm -hmm. um, in a way that few other artists sort of really achieve. And that voice sort of carries so much with it. And there are sort of few voices that do that for me. Like Donny Hathaway is another one of those artists where Mm -hmm. it's just he can sing one note and I'm already like in tears and also elated and also all these other things but this idea of like queen of soul it wasn't just about soul music it was about like the soul of america mm-hmm. right and particularly the soul of blackness in america mm-hmm. and it's like it's it's sort of hard to 
articulate how essential Aretha is to music. I mean, I grew up listening to Aretha. There were Sundays where if we wouldn't make it to church, my mom would put on the Amazing Grace album, <laughs> which is like, <laughs> that was our going to church moment. And it's, it's like, and I still, I have that album, you know, on my, uh, in my iTunes or whatever. And it's just, it's a brilliant gospel album and I love it to death, but there are so many songs of hers that are just sort of touch tones in my life. Like her version of Bridge Over Troubled Water is brilliant. Her version of The Weight is amazing. Daydreaming is a beautiful song. Ain't No Way is a beautiful song. And she had a way of owning songs that used to belong to other people. <laughs> that was just, there's this great quote that I saw recently um, after she passed where uh, Etta James was talking to Sarah Vaughn and they were just sort of like, you know, have you heard about this Aretha kid? And they were like, yeah, her version of Skylark is ridiculously amazing. And Sarah Vaughn's like, I will never sing that song. <laughs> it's just, like, it's just, like she had, it's hers I, and you don't touch it yeah. and it's done. It's just, yeah, Wesley Morris in the New York Times said that she oversaw more gut renovations than a general <laughs> contractor. That she just took songs and just hollowed them out and reconfigured and them. They were, they were and were brilliant. And it was yeah. just like, that note didn't exist before you sang it. Yeah. And now that song is yours and no one else should really be trying to do that after you. You know, they're just... There are some sort of black music icons that it feels like a piece of the foundation has just sort of fallen off when they leave us. I think probably for my like conscious life, like I, there were obviously many that happened before they sort of before I sort of felt them in a deep way. Right. And Luther Vandross was probably the first one where I was just like, oh fuck, that one kind of hurt. And part of it was because my mom had walked down the aisle uh, to Here and Now, which I think a lot of black couples actually walked down the aisle to that song when it came out. Um, and then it was Whitney, and I was like, oh, that one sort of hurt. And then, of course, Prince was just, like, devastating, and Aretha is the same. So there are, the, there are the, this, like, very elite group of, you know, brilliant black musical geniuses that just, they are in us from birth. And even if you aren't born in the time when they were popular, mm -hmm. they're still just sort of in you. And if somebody starts a song to sing a song, you can jump right in because you just, like, it's like you're just sort of born with this connection to it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, yeah, that Aretha was a heart. That's a that's a deep loss for us. That thing you were saying about just what you can hear in her voice, mm -hmm. and 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 also what you were saying about that being like a substitute for church mm -hmm. when you were growing up. Um, I don't know if you read Michael Harriet's piece in the Root. Mm -mm. He wrote a, a really good piece about her performance of the national anthem mm -hmm. at a football game. Um, it was the big Thanksgiving game. It was mm -hmm. the week after Trump was elected. Oh, okay. And he just talked about what a moment that was and how everyone in his house just like went silent. Yeah. And he said, to be sure, she sang the lyrics. She kept the melody. But nothing that came out of Aretha Franklin's blessed mouth that day was about bombs bursting in air. It was a Thanksgiving grace. It was a gospel hymn. It was a Hallelujah. It was everything black that ever was and ever will be. My pride that day had nothing to do with the black president, the troops, the flag, or America itself. It was about that unkillable thing buried deep inside us. It was about that unstealable essence that spilled from Aretha's lips. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's uh, you could say the same when she uh, sang at Obama's inauguration. Mm -hmm. like, Aretha took her black self up on that stage with that black president and his black family in that black church hat and saying America and it had nothing to do with pride in America like it was just, it was a hymn it was the sort of gospel moment it was the sort of 
sacred space that she created and, and we as a community sort of held for this, you know, historic moment. And it was it, like she just she brought something to songs that, again, was very, I don't know, like it, well, it sounded ancestral. Like it sounded like she was pulling something up from the ground yeah. and, and it was all coming out of her. Um, and again, in a way that you, you just don't have with very many of any artists. Um, so, yeah, Aretha's a genius. But babes, this is Jake and Elwood, the Blues Brothers. The Blues Brothers? Shit. They still owe you money, fool. Ma'am, would it make you feel any better if you knew that what we're asking Matt here to do is a holy thing? You see, we're on a mission from God. Don't you blaspheme in here. Don't you blaspheme in here. Now, this is my man. This is my restaurant. And you two are going to just walk right out that door without your dry white toast, without your full fried chickens, and without Matt Guitar Murphy. Now, you listen to me. I love you, but I'm the man and you are the woman, and I'll make the decision concerning my life. You better think about what you're saying. You better think about the consequences of your actions. Oh, shut up, woman. You better think, think, think about what you're trying to do to me. Okay, so what do you actually know about the Blues Brothers? Uh, close to nothing. I oh, know. Wow, really? <laughs> I mean, I, I how was that possible? I've lived in Chicago, so I've seen you know obviously <laughs> references to Blues Brothers. Um, so I know it's based in Chicago. I know it's a sort of spinoff of an SNL skit, mm-hmm. though I have never seen the SNL skit. <laughs> yeah, I know it stars a lot of black music artists. Uh, I know Aretha's in it. I believe James Brown is in it, mm-hmm. and. Uh, Ray Charles. Mm-hmm. And that's about it. Okay. I mean, I don't. I don't even feel like I need to make some big elaborate argument for why you need to watch the Blues Brothers. You just need to watch the Blues Brothers. I feel like you said that for a lot of things that I <laughs> actually didn't need to see. I mean, it it is a cultural touchstone, certainly for my generation. It's one of the biggest comedies of the '80s. It's a big budget star vehicle for two great comedians at the height of their powers, Dan Aykroyd and John mm-hmm. Belushi, which makes it sound like, especially when you consider the SNL connection, it should be this big kind of cynical corporate cash grab right. kind of movie. Mm-hmm. And it's not. It's bigger and messier and weirder than that. <laughs> So this, like, big-budget movie has also become this legendary cult mm-hmm. film. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's just, it's a it's kind of a weird movie. <laughs> and as you said, it's got fantastic music from legendary musicians featuring cameos or extended cameos from musical legends such as John Lee Hooker, Cab Calloway, James Brown, Ray Charles, and, of course, Aretha Franklin. It is, among other things, a defiant celebration of rhythm and blues that emerged from the darkest days of disco. <laughs> And I would make an appeal to your personal predilections. I will tell you that it is a film in which the heroes are fighting against the evils of the police, homegrown Nazis, and country and Western music. Our white heroes are fighting against these things. 
with black music. Right. Okay. <laughs> You're going into this cynical, I can tell already. <laughs> and as you said, we are a Chicago-based podcast, yes. and this is probably the definitive Chicago movie. People will probably say Ferris Bueller, actually, but okay. No, I, I put this up against Ferris Bueller <laughs> as a Chicago movie. Okay, so a little background. As you said, the Blues Brothers debuted on Saturday Night Live 40 years ago this year, actually, 1978, as the musical guest. It was not actually a comedy skit. They mm-hmm. were the musical guest, mm-hmm. um, which is a thing. It started out, uh, Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi met um, in the early 70s. Aykroyd was apparently running an illegal speakeasy in Toronto. As you do. While also performing with uh, the Toronto satellite troupe of Second City. And these two guys met, and as Aykroyd said, it was love at first sight. (laughs) And he was the one that started introducing Belushi, who had been a rock and roll guy, Mm -hmm. to the blues. Mm -hmm. And Belushi took to the blues like he took to everything, you know, with excess. Yeah. Like he took to cocaine. They both joined SNL in 1975 in the inaugural class of the Not Ready for Primetime players. And I don't think, like, it, it would be hard to overstate how big a cultural moment the first couple of seasons Mm -hmm. of Saturday Night Live were. Everybody was talking about it. It seems like every skit inspired a catchphrase that trickled into the public Mm -hmm. consciousness. I mean, I was young. I mean, I was, you know, seven or eight, nine years old during that time. And the kids on the playground were all quoting (laughs) stuff from Saturday Night Live. I had a comic book in which Spider-Man teamed up with the Not Ready for Primetime players. Like, they were everywhere. (laughs) I think every cast of Saturday Night Live has tried and failed to... Replicate that magic. To replicate Mm -hmm. that magic. Mm -hmm. So anyway, Aykroyd and Belushi started playing together before they were on the show. They started playing around town just for fun. Mm -hmm. Uh, Lorne Michaels apparently would let them warm up the crowd before Saturday Night Live, but he wasn't sure about actually putting them on the air. And then in 78, Steve Martin asked them to open for him. He had a sold-out nine-day stint at the Universal Amphitheater in Los Angeles, and he asked them to open for him during Mm -hmm. that set. And they were like, okay, so... They actually had to put a real band together to do that rather than just fuck around. Um, And they did. They put together a real band of very good musicians, led by keyboardist Paul Schaefer, who was then SNL's musical director, later went on to be David Letterman's sidekick. Oh, yes. But they had legendary sax player Blue Lou Marini, who had recorded with Zappa, Aerosmith, Steely Dan, Dionne Warwick, and a bunch of other people. They had the horn player from Blood, Sweat, and Tears. They had... Matt Guitar Murphy, who had recorded with Ike Turner, Chuck Berry, Memphis Slim, Etta James, and many others. They had Duck Dunn and Steve Cropper from Booker G and the MGs. This this was a real mm. band. And they actually, they were such a big hit in that Steve Martin stint that they signed with Atlantic Records. Wow. And their first album, Briefcase Full of Blues, hit number one on the Billboard 200 <laughs> and went double platinum. Oh, dear. So it was that, they actually became a big musical act first, and then they appeared on Saturday Night Live. Okay. And like I said, it wasn't really skits. They weren't funny, although it was funny watching John Belushi dance was always (laughs) funny. But they played it straight. They Mm -hmm. didn't play it for comedy. Mm -hmm. So then, I mean, the movie deal was kind of, that was almost guaranteed to happen at that point. Belushi was 
on top of the world than Animal House had come out the previous year. So Belushi, in the course of a year, had number one movie in the country with Animal House, number one TV show on television with SNL, and a number one record with, with the Blues Brothers. John Landis was hired to direct the film. He'd worked, he'd also done Animal House. Um, and this was the golden period for John Landis when he could do no wrong. I mean, he had done the Kentucky Fried movie in Animal House prior to this. Then he did the Blues Brothers, American Werewolf in London, Trading Places. He directed the Thriller video. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was, he, he would never match this period again. Um, his career has kind of been one of diminishing returns <laughs> since then. This kind of a middle period where he's doing things that are okay, like, you know, Three Amigos, <laughs> Coming to America, which okay, is a that's film not you love. Okay. I, okay, I'm just saying. And then the later period is Blues Brothers 2000, which was a bomb, and a bunch of movies I've never even heard of. <laughs> but it doesn't matter. He's He made his mark right. in the 80s. This was the most expensive comedy of all time, with a budget of $17 million. And for reference, like Animal House, it had a budget of about $3 million. So this was a $17 million budget that bloated to something like $28 million during shooting. Paying for what? So you'll see, there's a lot of uh, car chases and okay. things. It went famously and fantastically behind schedule. Landis was somewhat of an inexperienced director to be attempting this big, unwieldy mess of a movie. Mm-hmm. Belushi was not the most reliable person to work with. Cocaine's a hell of a drug. Well, that's Aykroyd mm-hmm. says, and I don't think he was making a joke, there was a line item in the budget for cocaine. Yeah. And, yeah, we we can talk some more about the actual shooting of this movie after we watch it. Do you remember that? And I don't think it lasted long because I think it was terrible. Um, What I'm envisioning in my head, and this probably isn't fair, once you've read read the list of the actual musicians they Mm -hmm. had working with them. But before you you got into that, I was picturing, this was post-Blues Brothers, but when, uh, what's his name? Oh, God. Uh. What? Nakatomi Plaza. What is the dude's Bruce name? Willis, yes. yes. When Bruce Willis had like a musical career yeah. for a second. Yeah. Like that's when I mean like the sort of middle-aged white guy sort of trying to do. That was very much <laughs> an, an attempt to recreate the Blues Brothers. Okay. And it, so that's what I'm saying. It failed. Okay. And not to overstate the musical talent of Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi, but Bruce Willis was not. <laughs> not the guy to do that. And I, okay, so let's talk about that, because I knew you were going to be cynical going into this, and, Mm -hmm. you know, some of that is fair. It is two white guys... In shades and suits. In shades, leading a band of black musicians playing black music. Uh But I'll say a couple things about that. For one thing, and you will resist this, but it's absolutely true, the Blues Brothers helped reintroduce this music Mm -hmm. and these aging legends Mm -hmm. into the popular eye and reinvigorated their careers. Okay. Aretha credited this movie with basically saving her career. Mm. Because she had fallen completely out of favor. She hadn't had a hit in a long time. Um, As film scholar Tim Brayton writes, It is almost impossible to imagine a world in which Aretha Franklin is anything but one of the preeminent musical legends of contemporary pop culture. Yet that was the world of 1980, when a failed attempt to redefine herself as a disco star had left Franklin all washed up, until this very movie started to rehabilitate her as a soul icon. (laughs) 
In fact, the studio didn't even want Aretha. They wanted Donna Summer, who was Somebody big. Who was current. And or yeah. they wanted the guys that sang Car Wash <laughs> instead of Aretha. They were like, nobody knows who Aretha Franklin is. And all of the musicians involved will say the same thing. Um, none of them were on top of the world. James Brown, right. Ray right. Charles, these guys were not in the public eye in 1980. And the other thing, just to give them a little credit going into this, is when they did their albums and the, the movie and everything, they negotiated no piece of the music rights, mm. which was unheard of. Mm-hmm. You know, normally they, it would have been, we're going to use your song and we're going to get 50% right. of the royalties on it. They negotiated no piece of that. They said, that's not right. It's not our music. And again, all the songwriters of those great old R&B hits say they got the biggest checks of their lives. Right. From the Blues Brothers. So, a a little little credit. The other thing I will tell you is when this movie was screened for distributors, most of the distributors said, this is a black movie and white people won't see it. How is it? This movie is way too black. (laughs) One of them, an L.A. distributor, said he could book it in Compton, but not in Westwood. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So, open mind, I guess, going into it. Okay. I will give them that. <laughs> okay, so what are you expecting from this? Um, I mean, I'm expecting it to be funny, I guess, if it's based around an SNL thing and knowing Bougie well, Aykroyd. I mean, the let's face it, the history of movies based on SNL stuff That's is fair. not that is fair. a proud history. Um, but, I mean, Bougie and Aykroyd have had good you know, mm-hmm. track records in terms of comedy. So, And, again, I'm, the music will be great, so... The scene that you showed me does it makes me a little bit nervous though. What? Oh, is the the nun hitting them with the ruler, <laughs> which you said was like the funniest scene you've. Ever. I did, and I was just like, oh yeah, it's okay. So, well, it was out of context, right? It sure, was I'm good. sure it's context that I was missing. <laughs> That's it. All right, well, let's go watch the whole movie and see what you think. Okay. All right. You better get bright, pal. We got a show to do. Then we got to figure out some way to collect that gate money. Get it to the Cook County Assessor's Office as soon as they open in the morning. Joliet, Jake, and Elwood Blues. Two men with a mission. And only 11 days. Don't come back until you've redeemed yourselves. Our Lady of Blessed Acceleration, don't fail me now. understand it. We're on a mission from God. John Belushi. You! How much for your wife? <laughs> Dan Aykroyd. After the gig, uh, maybe we could, like, uh, hang out together. James Brown. I heard the sound in my car. Cab Calloway. Hurry, 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 Ray Charles. You know depreciation, man. Carrie Fisher. I must now kill you and your brother. Aretha Franklin. You're living with me now. 
and you're not gonna go sliding around with your old white woman friends. Henry Gibson. He better pray the police get to him before we do. And the Blues Brothers Band. Let's go, boys. The Blues Brothers. Are you the police? No, ma'am. We're musicians. And we're back. During the break, Nikki and I watched The Blues Brothers. Uh, we watched the two-hour and ten-minute version. Is there another version? There, there's, there is a version that's 15 or 20 minutes longer. If you want, we can watch that one that, also. There's no reason for it to be as long as it was. I'm sure there's more nuance in it. Just another car chase. <laughs> <laughs> so, this is a weird movie. How is it? Why weird? Watching it, and I hadn't seen it in a long time, it's kind of a strange movie. And I think that's what I like about it. It didn't strike Why strange? Okay, so first of all, you have these two comedic greats Mm -hmm. who are basically the straight men in this movie. They don't actually have a lot funny to do. And especially if you look at, for example, what Belushi was known for, which is this kind of madcap physical comedy. Mm-hmm. It They're both playing it very straight, and they're both, they just have these kind of deadpan reactions to everything throughout the entire movie. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the rev- early reviews, I remember, complained about, it, it basically asked why you would take an actor with such a comedically expressive face as John Belushi and hide him behind some shades and hide him behind sunglasses the entire movie (laughs) which again I think is part of the joke like I think this is part of what I like about this I feel like they didn't make the movie that one would have expected them to make okay and yeah and it's just this big rambling shaggy dog of a movie that is kind of a little bit it's both simplistic in its plot Mm -hmm. you know it's hey let's put on a show and kind of aimless and messy and a lot of random stuff. All of which, again, is what I like about it. Mm-hmm. But it did not win everybody over. The, it made a lot of money. This The film ended up, even with its bloated budget, it made over $100 million at the box office. Uh, but the early reviews were mixed. <laughs> so this is Gary Arnold writing in the Washington Post. He called it extravagantly budgeted and wretchedly shot. Oh, wow. He used a lot of words like misconceived. <laughs> A ponderous comic monstrosity. Uh, Richard Corliss in time kind of concurred with that assessment. And he said, too rarely the movie relaxes to let some fine rhythm and blues artists show what they can do. In the process, they show up the two stars as glum shimmers with no characters to inhabit and little feeling for the music. Um, the Blues Brothers is a demolition symphony that works with the cold efficiency of a Moog synthesizer gone sadistic. So not a fan, I think, we can safely say. But there were positive reviews. Chicago boy, Roger Ebert. <laughs> What's a little startling about this movie is that all of this works. The Blues Brothers cost untold millions of dollars and kept threatening to grow completely out of control. But director John Landis has somehow pulled it together with a good deal of help from the strongly defined personalities of the title characters. There's even room in the midst of the carnage and mayhem for a surprising amount of grace, humor, and whimsy. And then, this is a contemporary review from Tim Brayton at Alternate Ending. 
He says, It is mystifying that a film so aggressively formless in its aesthetics and structure should end up feeling as tight and intentional as the Blues Brothers does. There's a genuine sense of the miraculous going on here. Objectively, the Blues Brothers is a failure, and yet, watching it, every last thing about it works. I don't know where in the comic timing, the bravura action, the incandescent musical performances, or the grubby Chicago location photography, the alchemy happens. I just know that despite everything, the Blues Brothers is one of the finest and most lasting pieces of Main Street pop entertainment from an entire decade. Nakia, what do you think? <laughs> um, I mean, I... It didn't really affect me on either sides of those spectrums. Like, I didn't... Oh, dear. ...hate it as much as some of those reviews <laughs> uh, seem to hint at, and I didn't love it as much as some of the positive reviews uh, speak to. I didn't find it strange, but maybe that's because I came into it with no expectations of what type of humor, mm, Belushi, mm-hmm. and, I mean, I, I've seen Aykroyd, I've seen sort of later Aykroyd, but... So I didn't have any sort of expectations of what type of comedy it was going to be. Um, and the way that you described it to me, it sounded like even on SNL, they played it straight. It wasn't this big... Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the SNL, when they were on SNL, it was sort of the same kind of weirdness. It right. was like, you watch it and you're like, am I supposed to be taking this mm-hmm. seriously? Mm-hmm. Are they playing it straight? Is it supposed to be funny? Mm-hmm. And it was always a little unclear. And I think it's unclear throughout this entire movie. Yeah. I think so. I think they're supposed to be these characters. Like, I think that they're doing Jake and Elwood blues. And that's... There is some humor in that, but it's sort of the natural humor that happens between two people who are brothers and just talking to each other. And it's not two comedians sitting in a car making jokes, maybe. And... As far as the the critique that it was sort of aimless or formless, to me, I didn't get that at all. It felt like they were on this, you know, journey to get the band back together and then leading up to this big performance and reunion of the Blues Brothers to make Mm -hmm. money for, you know, the orphanage. So it seemed to me to have a pretty linear path. Now, did it take long as shit to get there? <laughs> yes. But I... It, did it take a lot of meandering side paths along the way? Right, but I mean, I that's mean, sort we've of... Got, that's sort of how we got movies. Illinois Nazis thrown right. in there. We got the country music band. We've got Carrie Fisher's surprisingly well-armed yeah. mystery woman chasing them around. But I mean, that's sort of typical of the sort of quote-unquote hero's journey, right? Is that there are going to be <laughs> obstacles thrown in the path. So, again, to me, that... Right makes sense for what the movie was trying to do except for the Carrie Fisher thing the Carrie Fisher thing that probably could have <laughs> been on the cutting room floor and that's not nothing against Carrie Fisher that's just that was just that was probably one of the weirdest elements of the film I probably would have liked it better actually if we never found out who she is if they never if they just never that. explained why she was trying to kill them <laughs> if she was just this random woman that was you know constantly trying to murder the Blues Brothers but to find out she was just sort of, like, jilted at the altar by Jake. Uh-huh. It's just kind of like, oh, okay, well, then it's just, you know, the scorned woman who's trying to get revenge. Right. Thing. I would have rather her just been some random woman who was trying to murder them. You're um, right. I think I think that's a I think that's a better edit. We should we should let them know. And have but, yeah, so, I mean, having said that, it was not laugh out loud funny for mm-hmm. me. Like, it was, there were a few kind of tee-hee moments. Um, <laughs> but it was, it's a very subtle sort of, wry humor right. just like and again it just feels like two people who are talking who aren't necessarily comedians and they just sort of happen to be funny because they say sort of funny things in the way that normal people say funny <laughs> things sometimes as a showcase for some brilliant black musicians <laughs> mm-hmm. i loved it well that's that's the other thing that we left out of that whole when we were just talking mm-hmm. about that is that 
it, it also seems like none of that matters. Like, all of those random plot elements, none mm-hmm. of them really matter. It really is just an excuse. It gets you from song A to song B. To get to you song, from, yeah. Right. So, mm-hmm. in that way, it's kind of the classic musical mm-hmm. structure. Mm-hmm. And again, including in that, the Blues Brothers themselves barely matter. Right. And, you know, we talked a little bit, you started hinting at this whole issue of appropriation Mm -hmm. of black music Mm -hmm. and exploitation of it. I like the way they function in those scenes. Mm -hmm. And I think even the black suits and the sunglasses and everything, it's like they're just there. And everybody around them is so animated and so colorful. And it's like they are are witnesses to that scene. In the James Brown, the church number. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing. It's the same thing when they're in Ray Charles's mm-hmm. music store. It's the same thing when they're in the diner with Aretha. Mm-hmm. And then what's... The, oh, with the John Lee John Hooker. Yeah. They're literally just walking by on right. the sidewalk and watching. They just stop to listen. They're yeah. just appreciating it. Yeah. And that's sort of what you said when you sort of gave the background of how they were approaching, particularly like the record sales and things like that, where they're just like... This is not our music. Right. All, you know, the, the the rights and everything belong to the actual original artists and making sure that they got their money. But it does just feel like two guys who got together and said, these are the artists that we love, that we want people to see. So let's just figure out a way to give them a platform mm-hmm. so that they can show how brilliant they are. Um, so it really does feel like just like a reason for fans to put together this sort of extended music video of their favorite sort of jukebox songs. <laughs> While managing to crash, what was at the time, a world record number of automobiles. So I don't know if this is like a fetish of yours. That I'm just now finding out about. But there have been a number of films that we've watched now where car chases, extended car um, trips, and car crashes have been pretty I mean, prominent Midnight Run we elements. watched recently. I feel like that had a more. number of car chases and crashes um, in it. Yes, this was egregious. <laughs> the, I guess the Terminator yeah, had a little, like lot of car a lot chase of stuff. Car I action. mean, I think it's not a fetish of mine. I mm-hmm. think it's a fetish of the 80s. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about that and trying, as we were watching this, I was, because even for me, it's like, there's a lot of fucking car chases in this movie. And I don't have the thing where I am just endlessly entertained by watching cop cars crash. Even when they're well done. And I thought they were very well, there were some very well choreographed car chases Mm -hmm. and car crashes in this movie. But I was sitting there thinking, like, what is that about? Why was that such a big thing in movies? And the only explanation I can come up with is that in that pre- special effects era before mm-hmm. you know we CGI had computer cgi yeah. special effects that was production value mm-hmm. that's like if you want to make a big movie and you want to give the audience their money's worth what can we do we can crash cars or blow shit up which they also or did blow shit film. up yeah. right exactly yeah we can't do spaceships we can't mm-hmm. do lasers but we can do car crashes yeah. so we want to go big that's we need more car crashes <laughs> Well, it's also, I think it's a shortcut to sort of mark a character or mark an institution as sort of the sort of incompetent, doofy antagonist. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, these cops are so bad at driving. And, you know, one cop car falls off the edge and then 20 cop cars follows him off the edge. And so it's a a way of just sort of mocking. Right. And on the other hand, making the heroes anti-establishment, you know, rebellious. Right. 
Okay, well let's let's talk about that because the other thing, and again on the the computer thing, I I I wanted to remind you while we were watching this that there were no special effects, mm-hmm. and so was that Belushi doing the backflips? Uh, I I won't say that there was no stunt doubles, but Belushi <laughs> did do those back. Yes, I think that's impressive. I think those were. Belushi. I would not have yeah. pegged Belushi for a backflip or that, he, of that when he, he used to do that stuff on Saturday Night Live oh, okay. too, and it was like yeah, that was part of what was funny and impressive about it was watching the guy with the Pillsbury Doughboy body doing those gymnastics on While stage. on cocaine. That is impressive. While, well, the cocaine, I'm sure, helped. <laughs> so the first time I saw this movie, I didn't know Chicago. Mm-hmm. I, this was long before I moved to Chicago. And so watching them destroy <laughs> Chicago was, for me, part of the fun of this movie. Okay. And wondering how the hell they got away with that. Because mm-hmm. there were some fairly sacred spaces there that they just totally trashed. Yeah. And so I, I read up a little bit on that. And Belushi was a son of Chicago. Belushi was born in Humboldt Park. Mm-hmm. And he was a beloved figure in Chicago. And Chicago at the time, under the endless reign of the first <laughs> Richard Daly, mayor of Chicago... Chicago had a reputation for being unfriendly to Hollywood. Movies mm-hmm. were not filmed here. Mm-hmm. Now we got Batman and the fucking right now Transformers. Well, this this is credited as the movie that changed that because Richard Daly had passed away in '76. Uh, Jane Byrne was the mayor at the right. time, and Belushi. They actually sent Belushi in to sit down and have a meeting with her and ask permission to do this movie. And as she recounts it, she's like, Belushi was nervous. He was sweating. He was a mess. He was. Just just, you know, so nervous about, you know, trying to get permission to do this movie. Apparently they offered, instead of having a big premiere here, they were going to just give money to local orphanages. Mm. To So there was a little bribe there <laughs> to the city. Not Chicago. Um, but she was like, I was a big fan of Belushi. And I said yes almost immediately. And he kept talking. She says, she says I said yes. And he just kept talking. <laughs> and, she's, and he was like, no, wait, you need to understand. We want to drive a car through the Daily Center. We want to smash the windows of the Daily Center and drive a car through there. And we've got scenes set in, you know, the old historic Cook County building. And we want to bring the army into Daily Plaza and all of We need to shut down God only knows how many streets. Lower Wacker. Lower and, yeah. Wacker, mm-hmm. right. But she, in part, I think, because she was no friend of the Daily family and <laughs> kind of wanted to screw that legacy. And also just because she saw the importance of opening Chicago up to Hollywood, mm-hmm. she said, basically, do whatever you want to do as long as you clean up after yourselves. So that's what happened. And John Landis says being in Chicago with Belushi was like being in Rome with Mussolini. (laughs) Like he was a god here. He said that Belushi, to get around town, would hail down cop cars like taxis. Oh my god. And the cops would just pull over and pick him up and take him wherever he wanted to go. Um, He said... Everyone was giving him drugs. Mm. Everyone wanted to have the I did drugs with John Mm -hmm. Belushi story. So everyone was just giving him drugs all the time. Aykroyd tells a story that they were shooting late at night somewhere out on the interstate and Belushi just disappeared was just gone Mm -hmm. and nobody could find him. And he finally, Aykroyd said he looked around and he saw there was a house way across the way that had the lights on. So he wandered over there and knocked on the door and he said, excuse me, we're shooting a film and we're looking for it. And the guy said, you're here for Belushi? (laughs) 
and, and apparently Belushi had just gone into the house, raided the fridge, and fallen asleep on the couch. <laughs> so when you asked about where did all the money go in this movie, it was it was a lot of crashing of cop cars. Right. They actually dropped a car from a thousand feet for that last shot with the the Nazis. Yeah. And then it was a lot of being behind schedule because Belushi was coked out of his head and <laughs> falling asleep in people's houses and disappearing. Okay. So. Anecdotes like that are hard because it's like, it's cute and funny until you realize that he died. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> two, two years later. Like, that's just, yeah. Yeah, it's not Somebody really should funny. have put the cap on that, but okay. Okay, so let's let's go through a few of these scenes. I don't think we need to go through the whole movie scene by scene, but let's let's go through a few of the highlights. You you had mentioned the nun scene, yes, that I had showed you previously, and you didn't think it was funny. Did you think it was funnier in context? No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> How can you not think that's it was funny? Same, I, I didn't say it was not funny. I just didn't. You like are rolling on the floor when that scene is okay, on. You're, that's a slight. Whereas I'm just like, oh yeah, that's funny. Because <laughs> she keeps hitting him. She keeps hitting him with. And roller. they keep swearing. Yes. Yeah. No, I, yeah. I get the joke. Um, <laughs> and then you have Belushi stuck in a child's school. Day desk and falling downstairs in the school desk um yes yeah, so I, I i get the joke i did like the very huge sort of uh crucifix with at the top of the stairs yes there. yeah i love the way landis shoots that actually it's like it's really yeah. creepy because it's sort of upshot in an angle yeah. up um and the lighting is weird it's all it's sort of very reminiscent of the um the crucifix that's in carrie's closet that the that her mom like shoves her in <laughs> <Yes>. to pray <laughs> yeah so i mean that was the funny scene <laughs> Okay, and then from there, <laughs> we meet uh, Cab Calloway. Right. Who works at the orphanage. Who works at the orphanage. And he sends them off to church. Yes. And can I say, I love that scene with Cab Calloway because they're in a, is it like the, the cellar of the orphanage yeah. where he lives? And on the wall is our pictures of Martin Luther King, yeah. uh, Malcolm X, uh, Bobby Kennedy, and John Kennedy. And I just, I love that. Like, because that was sort of the tableau on a lot of sort of older black people's yeah. walls. It's like those four sort of icons. Um, but yeah, so he sends them on a holy mission of basically going to, well, the nun says, tells them that. The orphanage owes $5,000 in taxes. Right. There's no way for them to get the money. Jake's initial response is, oh, we can get you $5,000. That's no big deal. <laughs> and the nun's like, that's dirty money. And then that's when she starts smacking them around with the ruler. Um, and then Cab Calloway, yes, sends them to church for the yeah, answer. go get right. Yeah, go get some redemption. Mm -hmm. So they go to church, and they go to James Brown's church, which that's, that's I mean, I would love to go to James Brown's church. Yeah. That was probably my favorite scene of the whole film, is that scene in James Brown's church. One, because it's James Brown in the pulpit. Mm. And two, because he sings Old Landmark, which is one of my favorite gospel songs, and it's actually on Aretha's um, Amazing Grace album, and she is amazing with it as well. But so he's singing Old Landmark, and there's just this eruption <laughs> of dance yeah. and movement, and like, it's... It's just a wonderfully shot scene, and it's sort of colors in there, right? So there's this beautiful stained glass in the church, and the choir's wearing, I think, like, purple and red. Yeah. And all of the parishioners are sort of in these really bold colors of red and purples and greens. And it's almost like an Alvin Ailey sort of production, the way that they're sort of all dancing in the aisles and, you know, doing choreography with the church fans and things like that. And it's just, I that scene is amazing. Dialed up to 11. Dialed up like to 11. Like, the whole thing like, is yeah. just, right, it's... I mean... Yeah, I had people, you know, 
getting happy and passing out in my church, but it was never anything like that. And it was just, it was such a great scene. It sort of reminded me of that scene in The Wiz when she yeah. liberates mm-hmm. the people in the sweatshop yeah. and then they do that whole dance number. Um, it was that sort of like just elation and joy. And that's, I mean, yeah, it was great. And that's where Jake has his vision. And yes. Realizes. He sees the light. He sees the light. Got to put the band back Gotta together. Got to get the band back together. And from there on out, they are on a mission from God. Yes. Okay, so getting the band back together, first we stop and pick up those guys working at a Holiday Inn, playing really shitty music out there. Murphy and the Magic Tones. Right. And then we are off to get Matt Guitar Murphy mm-hmm. from the diner on Maxwell Street, where he lives with his wife, Aretha Franklin. Oh, wait. Okay, I'm surprised that you don't love the scene at Shea Paul. That seems like a scene that you would really love. Why? I don't know, because it seems like something you would really be like, oh, that's a brilliant comedy scene. <laughs> oh, it was a fine scene. I don't know. I feel like you're, there's some insult in there's how you're saying that, that and I don't know not what it is. I just feel like it's sort it's of the same vibe <laughs> as the nun scene, where it's just like they just go and try to gross out everybody around them. How much for the little girl? <laughs> exactly. Like, how much for your women? Like, sorry, I just thought that that would be one of your favorite scenes. Okay. Um, but yes, so we go to the Soul Food Cafe to find Matt Guitar Murphy and his wife, Aretha Franklin. Yes. Who is not at all happy to see them show No, up. she is not interested in her husband going off with these white hoodlums, I believe she calls them. <laughs> who still owe him money. Who still owe him money. <laughs> so she does think in a pair of pink house shoes, which I love. Uh-huh. Um, and again, so we get the little sort of musical number breakdown with her and some of the customers from the diner, and it's a is awesome. And she's so sassy and just like <laughs> wonderful. In she's it. fabulous. Yeah. Landis has said that the hardest part about this movie and editing this movie was that none of these legendary performers wanted to lip sync. Mm. That they that because they did not do that. Right, right. Like Aretha had never lip synced yeah. a song in her life and was not happy about doing it. And you can see that they mm. look a little uncomfortable with that. And James Brown looks uncomfortable when he's doing it too. It's like that's not. They never sang a song the no, same way twice. They were fucking performers, and, man. Yeah. <laughs> that's what you do. So, oh wait, we skipped over. Over the mall scene. Oh yes, the high speed chase through the mall. There's a lot of space in this mall. Yeah. Man, they got everything here. <laughs> yes. So they get pulled over and they find out that Elwood has some ridiculous <laughs> like number traffic of traffic violations. violations, and so obviously that car needs to be impounded. Yeah. You're going to jail. And but they escape and lead the cops on a high speed chase through a mall, entering through the Toys R Us, <laughs> driving by a Pier One Imports uh-huh. and a number of other stores that they make note of, which that's actually a cool little set piece there. But then it has you thinking, you know, this seems like a gross waste of resources. Like <laughs> cops would not follow you into a mall in their squad. Like you're just one, you're probably running over some folks. <laughs> And two, it's a it's that's a lot of a lot of property damage that's happening there for some traffic violations. It just seems <laughs> it does seem excessive, a little, a little excessive. Yeah, <laughs> you had a lot to say about the uh, the significance of malls when we discussed uh, Dawn of the Dead. Do you mm-hmm. want to? You, you think we got some same thematic things happening here? Mm, 
I don't think so because there's no there. I mean, the thing with the malls in the zombie films was that they were sort of these sort of last bastions of safety in a in a mm-hmm. in a hostile world. Um, you know, sprouting up in the suburbs as a way to sort of protect the community members from the big bad big city. Right. And they became sort of little towns in and of themselves. So. Apparently, this was a mall in Chicago. Outside Chicago, outside Chicago, it's okay. suburb. Um, Geography gets a little yeah, shaky. Yeah, because I was like, I don't know what I mean. Mall in Chicago. <laughs> it's just like it was actually the mall, and I think Harvey. Mm-hmm. I think that they used. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think it functions in the same way here. Okay. I don't think. I got, I got some stuff later we can talk about about uh, gentrification and all of that related to this movie. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, you want to talk about uh, Illinois Nazis? I hate Illinois Nazis. I hate Illinois Nazis. Well, and that's Don't funny. Don't have an Illinois Nazi running for Senate or the, something? He was a Republican. He, well, yes. He was... <laughs> or was it Oak Park where he was running? I don't remember. Uh, I don't remember that asshole's name. Hold on. Yeah, so Arthur Jones, a self-proclaimed Nazi, uh, was, rep- uh, was um, running for a congressional seat. So he's running as a, a candidate in the 3rd Congressional District. Well, I think he was. I think he was running unopposed in the okay. primary. Yeah. I think the problem was that it's a democratic. It's a solid democratic right. seat, and the Republicans have no one to run. So yeah, we have a long history with Nazis. Yeah. Um, and that actually reminded me of the Skokie case. That's it. Was that's what it was based on? That's what it was based. Okay, because I I remembered that because it was the whole um, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly case where the Nazis essentially won the right to march in Skokie, which I believe was like a heavily Jewish. Yeah, with a large percentage of Holocaust survivors. Um, So they won the case, but then ended up not actually marching in Skokie, and they ended up marching in Chicago. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. I can't remember why they didn't do Skokie. But that's in the movie. They pull up, and they say, what's going on? And a cop says, these assholes won their case. Right. So they're marching. So that is, it's a direct reference to the Skokie Nazis. Um, Apparently, the Illinois Nazi leader, played by Henry Gibson, was based on the real guy, Frank Collin, Mm -hmm. who in 1977 sued to march in Skokie. Collin apparently was later discredited after it was learned his father was Jewish, and he was arrested in Michigan for having sex with a pair of 10-year-old boys. So there's a whole lot of shit going on there. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, so the asshole Nazis are marching on a bridge, and the Blues Brothers come across them and... Is it Jake that says, I hate Illinois Nazis? Yeah. <laughs> Which I don't know. Does he not hate Michigan Nazis? I don't know. Um, well, he's from Illinois. He hates Illinois sure. Nazis. I mean, but don't we just hate Nazis? Um, so they drive into the crowd of Nazis, and they end up all jumping off the bridge into the water mm-hmm. to escape getting hit. And it's this, you know, wonderful moment of, oh, didn't we show the Nazis? <laughs> You're suggesting it's not a deep political analysis. They have deep... no quarter here. Uh-huh. Actually, I mean, Chicago is an interesting city, right, when it comes to sort of political protests. Like, I don't know that we had, did we have any big Nazi marches in Chicago? Not that I am aware of. And then that one time that Trump tried to have a little rally here, we shut that shit down. Yeah. So. <laughs> Chicago's that, interesting. That got for canceled. A, a hyper-segregated city that has a lot of racial yeah. that it needs to deal with. Um, for some, those things don't seem to... It's interesting. Okay, we're skipping around here. We we skipped over John Lee Hooker. Yes. Who's which I think it. is actually one of the best scenes in the movie. Well, because it's John Lee Hooker. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's just a reason to put the camera on John Lee Hooker and let him play and let right. him sing and just enjoy it, which we absolutely do. And again, he's surrounded. He's, he's dressed 
amazingly and he's surrounded by all these extras that are you know really colorfully dressed and the fame maxwell street market mm -hmm. you know dancing to the music and like you said the blues brothers are sort of just moving through the crowd in black and white and shades so again it's sort of using their presence and their privilege and their platform to sort of shine the light on these artists right. who had sort of been you know, forgotten. Okay, so then a little later we get, I mean, part of shining the light on all of these artists is that the Blues Brothers actually play very little music in this movie. Mm -hmm. They they have their couple of numbers at the very end of the movie, mm -hmm. at the big... Gig? Gig. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the only other time they play in the movie is at the Country and Western Bar. Yes, Bob's. Bob's Country Bunker. Yes. <laughs> a bar I would drive past. Where they try to play the Spencer Davis group. That doesn't go over well. No. Because uh, they only play two kinds of music. Though they play both kinds of music there. Country and Western. Country and Western. Mm -hmm. And so we get the theme from Rawhide. <laughs> <laughs> Which is sort of perfect for people that don't know Country and Western. It's like, that's the only Country and Western I know is the Rawhide theme. And... <laughs> Or the, um, would the, uh, the Clampet theme, would that count as country and western? The Beverly Hillbillies. Yeah. <laughs> you could probably get away with that in that bar, I would think, It's a little twangy. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that would be me. Yeah. And then they sing a surprisingly touching version of uh, Tammy Wynette's Stand By Your Stand Man. Stand By Your Man. Yes. I mean, any bar that has to, you know, wrap the stage in chicken wire, that's, that's not really a bar you want to be playing. <laughs> Well, it's a, you know, it's a rowdy crowd. But why are you throwing bottles at the stage? Even if you like the song, you're throwing bottles at the stage. I don't I don't understand the response there. Because uh, it's fun? Same reason you crash cars. Unless somebody gets glass movie. in their eye. Like, I'm just like, I'm that person. So like, that just doesn't seem... <laughs> that's odd to me. But okay. These people should be wearing protective eyewear. They should! You got fucking <laughs> bottles being thrown at you. And then somebody has to clean that shit up at the end of the night. Nope. You really got in the spirit of this, didn't you? Yeah, I really did. <laughs> but yeah, so they took the place of the good old boys. That was yes, the band the that was supposed boys. to be playing that evening. Who show up after closing and after everyone has left right. and then seem surprised that they don't get to play the gig and yeah. pissed off about that. I'm, I'm going to say that's on them. It is. They were way late. Yeah, it's not the Blues Brothers' fault. No. But yes, they now they too are mortal enemies of the Blues Brothers. Yes, they've been picking so up got, enemies all along the way. We got the good old boys, we got the Illinois Nazis. We got the cops. We got the cops, and we got Carrie Fisher yeah. all chasing after the Blues Brothers. Yes. Who were just trying to save an orphanage. You know, it's a white man's burden. <laughs> okay, where are we? Well, after the good old boys, we get to the big show, don't we? Are we at the big show? I guess we are, yeah. Which the Blues Brothers are late to. Right. So... Cab's got to warm the crowd up. Which I love because so we, we see Cab Calloway in the beginning and then I'm like, oh shit, are they not going to let Cab Calloway yeah, perform no, with the no. bullshit? There's no way they weren't going to let Cab perform. <laughs> and so, but no, if we get this amazing performance of Cab Calloway in fucking tails, bitch, with the hair laid. <laughs> they, just, they just magically appear. I love like everybody's it. suddenly I in love the big, it. Well, because yeah. I mean, it's Cab Calloway, like Cab Calloway has to wear tails when he's performing. <laughs> um, but yes, he does a amazing rendition of Minnie the Moocher yeah. and it's just... Like, uh, just, yeah, that is yeah, a slick I motherfucker. I love Cab Calloway. Um, <laughs> yeah, so Cab Calloway, and ridiculous, right? Opens for the Blues Brothers. Yeah, I read a couple of pieces that, the the articles that tend to take the 
this is ridiculous Blues Brothers appropriating black mm-hmm. music tended to object to that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And it's like the idea that Cab Calloway would be a warm-up act <laughs> for the <laughs> Blues Brothers is offensive. Before the Blues Brothers got on stage. <laughs> no. And like, and I'm actually going to, I'm not saying that they, like I know that I said that in the beginning that that was my concern. Yeah. But having seen it, I do think that they are genuinely trying to just sort of showcase these artists. Right. Having said that, Cab Calloway is opening for the Blues Brothers and that is a <laughs> fucking abomination. Especially since they get on stage. So we've seen them perform at the Country and Western Bar. Yeah. And now this is their sort of big showcase. It was a weak as shit show. It was not that great. It was not good. And they did two songs and then bounced. Right. It's not good. Yeah. In general, I think... And I, we could put the blame on Landis, I guess. I don't think the actual musical numbers in mm-hmm. this movie, I don't think any of them sound very good. Mm-hmm. I think just the sound quality and the way they're edited mm-hmm. is not ideal. But no, they don't, they don't sound great. No, no. And so that makes me wonder how they carried a whole album of covers. Because they're not... So, well, see, that's the thing, though. I think the albums... And I, again, I'm not saying they are world-class musicians. Right. They're not... But I think the albums sound better mm-hmm. than they sound sounded in this movie. Okay. Uh, they did sound, it seemed very amateurish mm-hmm. in this movie. So I just wasn't impressed. So I was like, we've been building to this big showcase moment. And it was just two random white dudes up there singing cover songs. And <laughs> it was not great. Would you throw bottles at them? I would throw bottles. One, I, if I never hear Sweet Home Chicago again, I would be too, like, just, well, like, let's just. an occupational hazard of yeah, living here. Just let it die. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and two, yeah, they just weren't good. And if I'm going to a show and you sing two songs and then leave, I want my money back. Well, you got Cab Calloway too, so that's, you know. But right, my money's not going to Cab Calloway. It's going to Blues Brothers. <laughs> the reason I came, apparently, is for the Blues Brothers. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Okay. You ain't Lauren Hill. You can't be late and then only do two songs and then leave. I don't know who that is. Oh, I... I don't even know how to move <laughs> forward from that comment. I... <laughs> I... Yeah, we're just gonna have to move past it because I can't even <laughs> begin to deal with that right now. I'm disappointed in you. I, I, I'm supposed to know who that is? Kill the fuck Yeah! Lauren Hill, the miseducation, one of the big, oh, I, I cannot, nope, not doing it, not <laughs> doing it. She won like all the Grammys for that album. Okay. I must have missed that one. I don't know how. It was literally <laughs> everywhere. Why don't you hum a few bars? Maybe I'm not I, going to hum a maybe few bars. Maybe I know it. Maybe because I know it unlike all. the Blues Brothers, I know my lane and it is not music. <laughs> Okay. But we're going to have to have a discussion about that because that is just, you cannot be married to a black woman and not know (laughs) Lauren Hill or the miseducation of Lauren. Like, I have failed you somewhere along the line. That was one of the first. Okay, so it's not my fault. No, 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 no. It is absolutely your fault because black people, our job is not to teach you people shit. Okay. (laughs) So it's absolutely your fault. You had never seen the Blues Brothers. How is that possible? I'm sorry. What? Are you comparing these two things? Well, I don't know the other one, so I don't know if it's worthy of being compared with the Blues Brothers. We need to move on. (laughs) Because this is going to lead down to the road of divorce, and I just, I... I think we're ready. That's just horrifying. It's been a good run. Horrifying. So let's talk about the movie. 
So we leave the disappointing gig. <laughs> yes. And the boys go off to get Which the... you probably you probably thought was the end of the movie, right? When we I, I was hoping. Yeah. And yet it wasn't. Yeah. Um, Seems like it should have been and yet should have no, definitely been. But we I have a will say car chase. you know, just having the show with the band on the stage was probably the best idea anyway because you really didn't need those two <laughs> white dudes doing the two step in front of them. <laughs> so they go to get the money to the state what is it? The assessor's, assessor's office. Assessor's office, right. The county assessor. County assessor. Uh, so we're on another chase. Yeah, big one. Yeah. With the police, it also looks like the state troopers are involved. Yes, I think at some point the National Guard gets called in. Carrie Fisher's there. The Nazis are there. The good old boys are there. Mm -hmm. So it's all of everybody's chasing these two guys through Chicago. Everybody but Twiggy, who was out waiting for Dan Aykroyd. Yeah, that was another random ass... <laughs> the women aren't really done much justice in no, this film. No, no. Yeah, so they get to the state assessor's office, and there's you know scenes of them tearing through a city building, and the police are scaling the building, and they're you know destroying city property, and they finally get to the assessor. They pay the fine or the taxes. Mm. They get the receipt, but they've been caught. Police are there, and they're arrested, and they go to jail. Here's my question: Okay, why did the band have to go to jail? Right. So these two white dudes <laughs> in their, you know, crusade to save the orphanage that they went to, nobody else went to, ends up getting the whole band arrested. They're all in jail. That's a fair point. I don't actually know that the band did anything. They didn't. To get arrested. They didn't. The original reason the police were chasing them was because of Elwood's traffic violations. Yes. And I imagine that was some sort of infringement on Jake's parole. So I, yeah, I get why they are in jail. Uh-huh. The rest of the band had to go to jail too? Well, they had to keep the band together. No, that's not how that works. I'll see <laughs> so you when could, I get out. So they could play jailhouse rock right. in the in the in the jail. Talk about appropriator of black music. <laughs> Fuck Elvis. <laughs> would, you, would you like to talk about Elvis a little bit? I would not okay. like to talk about Elvis. You know who I'd like to talk about? Big Mama Thornton. That's who the fuck I'd like to talk about. <laughs> Original singer of Hound Dog. Okay? Yeah. Look it up, bitches. So, yeah. Aretha Franklin was right. He should not have gone off with those white hoodlums. <laughs> okay, you skipped over about, you know, $20 million worth of car crashes. Because it's the same... There. It's the same shot. <laughs> Sometimes it's 20 police cars crashing into a ditch. Sometimes it's a police car crashing into the side of a truck. Sometimes it's a police car... Like, okay, I, I don't know how many times... I could see police cars crashing and still get any excitement out of it. They still end up in jail. You didn't appreciate the, you know, if nothing else, as a tourist film for Chicago. That's where they got the Picasso, Jake says. Yeah. And then they drive around the Picasso, mm -hmm. being chased by cop cars. Mm -hmm. And then they crash into the Daily Center. I don't think that movie drove anyone to Chicago. I think it probably did, actually. I'm not sure about that. Ferris Bueller probably did. I don't know that Blues Brothers did. Okay, let's talk about Ferris Bueller, shall okay. we? I haven't seen you, it in a very long time. but You proposed at the beginning I said Ferris some Bueller would argue. I said some was the would definitive argue. Chicago movie. I Are you willing to reassess that statement now? I still think more people probably think of Ferris Bueller as the quintessential Chicago film than Blues But is Brothers. that a good thing? I don't think either of them are like, okay. coolie high. <laughs> so I don't have any love for either of those films. So okay, this is a side note, but uh, Aaron Wren, writing for City Journal, proposes that the Blues Brothers and Ferris Bueller, these two quintessential Chicago movies, mm -hmm. 
taken together, tell the story of gentrification in Chicago. Okay. He says, made just six years apart, they present strikingly different visions of Chicago. The Blues Brothers begins with an aerial view of Chicago's historic industrial complex of oil refineries and steel mills. It's an industrial hellscape with fire and smoke <laughs> belching into the sky. This Chicago is still a city of big shoulders, a place that makes things. Ferris Bueller, by contrast, opens in a pristine, leafy suburb. Its first shot of the city is its gleaming skyline. The later film, Chicago is a post-industrial metropolis of the intangible economy, scrubbed free of the grit of a vanishing era. And he talks about how the Blues Brothers presents a biracial city. It starts in the South Side. Mm-hmm. We go to a South Side church, the legendary Maxwell Street Market, as the film reflects a rising Chicago black community that in 1980 was nearing the apex of its influence. Whereas Ferris Bueller, the film's suburban milieu is almost entirely white and upscale. The primary divide in this universe remains present in today's Chicago, that between the comfortable upper middle class and the genuinely wealthy. Watching these films today, viewers under the age of, say, 45, would be struck by how alien Jake and Elwood's Chicago seems and how familiar Ferris's Chicago has become. The vibrant working-class culture, tough old nuns, SROs, and Maxwell Street Market of the Blues Brothers have all either disappeared or survive only as shadows of what they once were. So they should be a box set. Uh, no. <laughs> a study in Chicago history. Um, yeah, I mean, that's interesting. Um, Blues Brothers is definitely a much more inclusive <laughs> picture of Chicago. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, they are both, you know, told from the perspective of white protagonists. So right. I think the Blues Brothers, I think the danger with a film like that, and I think that they escaped this for the most part is the it could easily become sort of a tourist film so right. it's like these white guys are touring black communities based around the music of black people and the sort of joy and movement of black people it's easy for it to be it is not of those communities it is not a full picture of those communities and, and this idea that you know the only time you want to go to kind of quote unquote go down there is when the black people are entertaining and are sort of Right, and get a little sample right. of the black experience. Exactly. And, right. um, now, again, I don't, I, I don't think this movie does that. I don't think it does. I think it. I agree. It could easily it have could, yeah. have been that, but I don't think it is that. Right. I think it has a genuine appreciation for the black community, for mm. black culture, for the black spaces. And part of that, too, I think is, and this is kind of where I was going with the mall thing earlier, it's like we're not trashing the black communities. Mm-hmm. We're not driving through the black churches. We're not trashing those neighborhoods Mm, i see we're destroying the white suburban mall and Mm -hmm. we're destroying downtown chicago in the loop Mm -hmm. and the that the anti-establishment tone of the film is directed at everything but those black spaces it seems like right yeah i mean yeah and it's it's interesting to sort of compare those movies because they are both sort of this like view the city through my eyes sort of thing like they're taking the audience along and on in all the spaces that they think are sort of important and defining of the city Um, right and so for ferris that's the art institute and that's things like that um which are very sort of white you know wealthier spaces and Jake and Elle would take you to, you know, the Soul Food Diner. Exactly. And, and um, Ferris Maxwell goes, Street. Ferris goes to the snooty mm-hmm. restaurant right. because he wants to eat there and be treated right. like he belongs there. Right. Jake and Elle would go to Shea Paul to Go to Shea Paul to fuck with people. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Okay. So now all I want you to do is admit that 
the Blues Brothers is the quintessential Chicago I film. didn't say that Ferris was. I said most people would probably argue that Ferris Bueller is the quintessential film. I don't think either of them really are. <laughs> Um, okay, so then you are casting your vote for the only other possible option. What is the only other possible? This is going to be terrible. Running Scared with Billy Crystal and Gregory Hines. With the cotton ball snow? No. <laughs> no. Absolutely not. No. <laughs> no. Cooley High. It's got a car ch- that I'm one, putting that Cooley one, High in the mix. That one has a car chase on the L tracks. Yeah, I'm putting Cooley High And in it mix. has that shootout in the... It has Cotton Ball Snow. What I'm what's, saying what's is... What's the center? What's the one of the glass elevators? Oh, the... Uh, it's that ugly building. I right. Like. Yeah, no, it's hideously ugly. <laughs> what the fuck uh, is it called? I think that building is so ugly that the city yeah, has tried to sell it for decades and they can't get rid of it. Thompson oh, Center. The Thompson Center, yes. Yeah. It has that great shootout in the Thompson Center with the glass elevators. Cotton ball snow. <laughs> if you're going to set a movie in Chicago, you got to get the snow right. If you can't get the snow right, I don't even need to talk to you. Nope, not at all. All right. Did you have a favorite part of this movie? James Brown's church. <laughs> okay. That was my favorite part. <laughs> I could stay in James Brown church for two and a half hours and left the rest of the movie. Would have been totally fine. Any final thoughts on the Blues Brothers? They should let the original artist do the singing always. I'm going to play you some some Blues Brothers tunes. No, I know. I, I've off, seen enough. Off the double platinum that number one. insane. Record. I just, nope. <laughs> I cannot. No. I don't, I don't know what's happening to this country. It's like it, hearing that the Eagles have surpassed Michael Jackson in the number one album of all time. Like, which just, I believe just happened, didn't yeah. it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, it's just, that's just wrong. <laughs> Is that, it's the fucking Eagles. No. There's a lot of opinions about things. Yes. Yes, I do. That's our show. We want to thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. The Music Box Theater here in Chicago is showing some great old films over the next few weeks, and we are going to take advantage of that to see some of the films on Nakia's list on the big screen. First up next week is Billy Wilder's 1950 classic, Sunset Boulevard. I know absolutely nothing about that film. Good, so it'll all be new to you. In the meantime, you can find us on the web at unaffiliatedcritic.com. Follow us on Twitter at Free Range Critic. Send an email to michael at unaffiliatedcritic.com. Or leave us a review on iTunes. In any of these places, we encourage you to suggest a movie Nikia needs to see to make her life complete. Until next time, remember, true love means making a partner watch movies they really, really don't want to watch. Or listen to albums that they should have heard 20 fucking years ago. This is going to be a thing now, isn't it? Hell yeah! This is a new terrible fact about you that I've just learned. You really haven't been paying attention for the past 12 years, have well, you? we haven't gone down the list of albums. Now I feel like I need to pull out the list and be like, okay, have you heard this album? Have you heard this album? Dude. I think it's like the 20th anniversary of that album this year. Everyone's been talking about it because it was mm. pretty monumental album. Yeah. Culture shifting album? No, nothing. Yeah, no. I remember feeling the culture shift around 20 years ago. I didn't know what it was that made the culture shift, but now I know. It was Lauren Hill. Let's move on. I don't want to talk to you anymore. <laughs> like, I don't, I. Nope. We have already established that I am a musical illiterate. But there are some albums. You know this. There are some albums that were just defining. 
I don't like if know you were alive, there was just no way that you could have not like the Doobie Brothers broke up. Something from that those that's just not I mean you would I no. <laughs> no. <laughs> just, it's the same way. All of these bullshit-ass movies you have me watching, I may not have seen them, but I've absorbed them because they're just sort of in the air. That, that's what I'm saying. Like, So it's just, I just don't know how you haven't even heard the name Lauren Hill or heard even a song, which I'm sure you absolutely have. You may not know what you heard, but it's, I... Okay, you want to talk about it some more? Sort of. <laughs> we have to have to come to Jesus meeting about that because this is not, this, this cannot stand. <laughs> I'm drawing a line in the sand. Did she ever record with the Booker T and the MGs? You're just a fucking Philistine, and I don't have <laughs> anything else to say to you. I really don't. Here's the thing. I don't know how we're together, because you don't love Prince, and then there are all these other albums that you just have no knowledge of, and, and these things are sort of so fundamental to me. I really don't understand it. We could launch a second podcast where I just listen to all these albums that I've never listened to. No, because what happens is then you say, oh, is that Dougie Doug, which is your go-to <laughs> black person whenever I say something. You're like, oh, is that Dougie Doug? <laughs> it's never Dougie Doug. <laughs> never once have I shown you anything or shared anything with you that had to do with Dougie Doug. <laughs> what, were we, what were we listening to that you didn't know? And it was, again, another, oh, yeah, it was the KRS song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You don't even remember what it was, do you? See, you don't even retain the information that I give you. You were going, whoop, whoop, that's the sound of the police. And I said, who is that? And you didn't even know yeah, who I it remember. was. Right. But you were butchering it and then didn't even have the decency to know who whose song that was. It was, uh, it was Dougie Doug, wasn't it? Okay, I'm going to punch you in the face. Like, I can't do this. <laughs> I cannot. We cannot move forward as a couple. As a union, as a unit, and you, nope, it's never Dougie Doug. Can we, can we get back to the movie now? I don't really want to get back to the movie because you don't know <laughs> shit. And I don't understand why I have to know your shit. You don't have to know my shit. See, this is, this is the great injustice of the world, right? Is that black people have to know all of the shit. We have to know about all your Lululemon and fucking all this other bullshit that y'all people care about. And what? you don't have to know anything about ours. What did you just say? Lululemon. You don't even know your own shit. That's the yoga pants. <laughs> the, fuck the fucking Lemon expensive is. yoga Why pants. Why would I know that? Because you're white. Because. <laughs> you can't get mad at me for not knowing. Yes, I can. Because you just walk around ignorant of everybody's shit. Except yeah. the stuff that you that's like. That's how I maintain my happiness. That's okay. But that's a privilege. What I'm saying is I can't. Do, I have to know all these things. And you don't know Lauren Hill or Kara's one or any. But somehow Dougie Doug has stuck in your brain. And I don't know why. Like, that's the only piece that you've kept. And I don't. And I don't even remember ever talking about Dougie Doug. I'm not putting any of this in the podcast. <laughs> Just so you know. You know what privilege I have? The privilege of editing. That's fine, because white people rewrite history all the fucking time. So yeah, you go ahead and do it. Go ahead. It's not new. That's what y'all bitches do.